Achieving Discomfort, an interfaith agenda of change and disruption. We have sort of developed an almost nihilistic view that there's so many negative things going on that we can't focus and therefore we cannot act against them. But very often we forget that we come from legacies and traditions of rebellion, of pushing back against tyranny, and most importantly, of showing our devotion to God by being servants, by being those who can serve others. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guest is interfaith activist Tahil Sharma. Tahil is an interfaith activist based in Los Angeles who is born to a Hindu father and a Sikh mother. He currently serves as one of three interfaith ministers in residence for the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles and is a member of the Next Gen Task Force for the Parliament of World Religions. Tahil spoke to Beliefs producer Jay Woodward from his offices in Los Angeles. Tahil Sharma, welcome to Beliefs. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jonathan. I'm feeling like this September is a great time to reflect on the year's worth of United States and international religion world headlines. It's been a banner year. I want to step back and look at a bigger picture. With your background in leading and living interfaith activism, I thought you might have some ideas for us. But let's start with just the basics. What what do we mean when we use the term interfaith? So... Interfaith is just something that's so complicated. I think that word can be loaded. People don't use it exactly the same way. And that kind of gives interfaith the opportunity to be a a multitude of definitions. Um, Interfaith, for me particularly, um, revolves around this idea of activism and advocacy. It's trying to fight for the marginalized and oppressed in our communities around the world. Um, But that same definition may overlap or not even align with other people's definitions who might focus on unity, who might focus on the environment, or who might just focus on conversation and relationship building. And I think we have to understand those multitude of definitions actually creates an intersectional and an inclusive opportunity for everyone to participate. I've heard you describe yourself as an anti-kumbaya interfaith advocate. Mm -hmm. Um, What is it that you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So growing up, I remember the song Kumbaya, My Lord Kumbaya, being the song that brought everyone together. It always, for some reason, reminded me of sitting late at night out in a forest around a campfire roasting marshmallows and everyone singing the song together. Yeah, that's the joke, right? Right, exactly. So it's everyone getting along together and there's no problem. And the problem with that in Interfaith currently is that Kumbaya is not achieving its its purpose to bring people together. What it is doing is it's actually being dismissive of difference. It's being dismissive of nuance. It's being dismissive of baggage and problems and the elephants in the room that actually allow communities to thrive. And unfortunately, we suffer from a lot of this because there's a cognitive dissonance that takes place when you're wanting to achieve peace and unity, but you're not willing to address the issues that actually can help you achieve it in a more transformative way. So I'm anti-Kumbaya because the way it's set up right now in many communities, 
it doesn't allow us to talk about the nitty-gritty issues that are affecting us personally in our communities and in our environment. What we do need to step into are spaces of discomfort that allow us to be challenged, that allow, that allow our perspectives to grow, um, that allow us to disagree with people and accordingly try to come up with a more comprehensive consensus about fixing issues. Because if we're always going to agree with each other, we're not actually fixing anything. But if we're always going to debate each other, we're also not going to fix anything. So we have to find ways in which we can maneuver back and forth through finding the best solutions by being able to see how we get along, how we don't get along, and how we can learn from one another. So Tahil, I've also heard you um, describe the need for interfaith to accomplish something that you call achieving discomfort. Can you describe that a little bit? I assume what you mean is that you need to achieve discomfort between faiths. And that is obviously the opposite of an anti-kumbaya ideal. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think first and foremost, communities need to recognize that uh, diversity shouldn't lead to tokenizing. If you're going to have numerous people being represented in your community, you have to look at them as the individuals who are practitioners of their individual understandings rather than being complete representatives of their denominations or their entire religions. And oftentimes that becomes a an awkward situation for someone that can be from a minority tradition. I come from two of them personally as a Hindu and a Sikh, and often enough, People think that I know everything about both traditions and want to include me in every conversation. And I'm limited as an individual, but I'm also limited as a practitioner who may not know every single thing. And honestly, that kind of pressure actually makes it really challenging for people to want to get involved in the first place because they have to feel like they're an expert of their entire tradition. And that's not exactly how interfaith is supposed to work. We're supposed to come in with our individual journeys and feel that value and that sense of respect. On the other hand, though, a lot of the times the separations actually come from um, those nuanced and difficult conversations about race, about age, about socioeconomic status, and even about uh, gender and uh, sexual orientation. When a person is not allowed to bring their full selves into a conversation or a community, you're not actually allowing them to express what is a part of their reality. And doing that kind of interfaith that is so dismissive and unable to actually appreciate the whole human being is not interfaith. So I think I know what you're talking about on one level, and I think it's a trap I know I've fallen into. It's a desire to understand more, understand better, um, and that leads to uh, finding somebody of another tribe to explain something for us or to educate us in in what may be a, a well-intentioned effort but ends up othering and tokenizing. Is right. Is that what you mean? To an extent, absolutely, because if you look at... Christianity, if you look at Islam, if you look at Hinduism, if you look at any of the world's major traditions, to go to one person and ask them what a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Christian believes is a loaded question because at many points there are 
common traits, there are common practices, and there are common theologies. But the problem is that is an assumption that the entire community of one or two billion people believes the exact same thing verbatim. And that's not how religious practice works. That's how religion as an institution or as a, a tradition works. And we come to a point where we look at different denominations, we look at different communities, we look at how they're inclusive or exclusive, and we realize that it's actually very different in practice to what we actually see scripturally speaking or theologically speaking. And I think we need to continue to recognize that when we have individuals representing those traditions enter our spaces and become sort of the experts on themselves and their journeys in that tradition. You know, I've spoken with bishops, I've spoken with lay people, I've spoken with faith leaders um, in congregations, and I sometimes get a sense of a general agreement with, with more often the kumbaya aspect of interfaith, but also um, a certain reluctance as well. It's nothing spoken outright, but it is there. It is an undercurrent of reluctance to fully commit to an interfaith perspective. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Like, they want to be interfaith, but up to a point. Absolutely. Um, That reluctance and that doubt um, may be based on fear, may be based on ignorance, may be based on misunderstanding, but it's actually that reluctance that is a great first step in their process of getting involved in interfaith, because the point of engaging in pluralism, whatever that diversity looks like in your context or your setting, means you're putting yourself in a place of vulnerability. And if you have the courage to be able to do that, you're actually allowing yourself to grow. You're allowing yourself to transform and realize that your reality can only exist in coexistence and interdependence with the others around you. And if people sort of come to that epiphany themselves, you can't obviously force it on them, it allows for an opportunity for people to see that there is not just a light at the end of the tunnel, that you're actually the light illuminating the tunnel. When you have people who are questioning or being skeptical of these conversations of why people from different traditions and worldviews need to engage each other. It's that precise curiosity that you need to act on to be able to grow the space, to be able to engage in the conversations that we feel are easy, that then become difficult, that then become absolutely challenging, seeing where your limitations are, and gradually being a part of this bigger movement that allows you to make the world a better place. Tahil, it's easy to look at the violence that feels uh, so terrifying in the news of religion, the uh, siloing that feels so regressive. It's the uh, marginalization of communities that feels pretty archaic and get depressed. But then there's the argument that we are in the midst of a disruption of norms. And for America, that's the disruption of a Christian normative society. So I'm curious... From an interfaith perspective, do you look at these headlines and do you feel like we are experiencing progress on one level or regression? Okay. Um, I feel like the answer is both. Mm. We have sort of developed an almost nihilistic view, I think, overall as a society, that there's so many negative things going on 
that we can't focus and therefore we cannot act against them. But very often we forget that it's that eternal chaos, that normalized chaos, that reminds us how resilient we need to be and that we come from legacies and traditions of rebellion, of pushing back against tyranny, and most importantly, of showing our devotion to God by being servants, by being those who can serve others. And I mean, quite frankly, these challenging days have been a part of the very traditions that have taught us to be rebellious too. I mean, this goes back into human history and civilization. There have always been communities that are marginalized and oppressed. And I think the problem is when the narrative continues to follow that through as a status quo of normalizing that violence and oppression, whether it's upon ourselves, whether it's upon other people, or whether it's upon our environment. And I think that's what we need to break away from when we look to our our deepest introspective and, and religious or spiritual roots, we have to consider what it means to actually step out of the, the zone of comfort that we might even have uh, as folks of faith and actually go to the front lines of where we usually don't end up to be able to fight against things. And that's all about a incremental process. It's about something that needs to be done over time, over what you're, whatever you're able to to really commit to and the success stories i mean come in so many different lights i mean the number of faith communities and faith leaders that have been taking the front lines on issues like immigration where we had folks from the poor people's campaign align with all sorts of leaders in el paso just to fight back and say that the separations of families are unacceptable is speaking a lot to what is a challenge to an administration. Um, it is a challenge to the very point of why we have a separation of church and state, and that it's always maligned for the sake of oppressing people when they try to abuse both religion and politics. And it, it's what constantly happens when we know that people of faith that not just make up a majority of the nation or the world, but that me, people of moral conscience still exist in troves that we can actually come together and actually put people in their place. And the fact of the matter is people don't understand how powerful that is. People use the same argument even when it comes to voting. My one vote doesn't matter. Well, guess what? It does. You, as a person of faith and moral conscience, have every ounce of energy and power to be able to make change if you recognize that millions, if not billions of people around you are in the same capacity and same thought process as you. You know, in a lot of ways, this year has been all about examining all of the dynamics that mm -hmm. define the Establishment Clause in America, the separation mm -hmm. of church and state. And we enshrine the separation of church and state, but it also feels that we do want our governments to participate in the world of God and faith in what sounds like a very interfaith perspective. That's been a part of America's history, Jonathan. I mean, when we look at the development of the First Amendment, and what Thomas Jefferson wrote previously as a part of the Virginia House of Representatives, this was already a fact that people wanted to be inclusive of other people's traditions. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote 
that statute in in the Virginia House of Representatives uh, saying that, you know, we are a nation that is sort of built on the model of being Christian. The entire House of Representatives voted against that. And in uh, President Jefferson's memoirs, it's written that the the Virginia House of Representatives was cognizant of the Christian, the Jew, the Mohammedan, and the person who does not have faith. And we're talking about people that in the 18th century had slaves, where slavery was the most normal thing you could do. And yet they were talking about pluralism. They were talking about religious diversity. They were talking about interfaith from the very beginning of this nation. And the fact that we don't recognize that as a fact now even just does not make sense to me. We can't deny the impact of religion on the founding fathers and how they framed the constitution. And we also can't deny that there was a reason for the separation of church and state because even at the beginning of the nation, there was religious diversity. It's not to the extent that that is that it is now, but that means we have all the more reason to strive for inner faith governance, that we have to contextualize what different faith communities need in order to bolster the separation of church and state so that we do not side or prefer with a single religion. Tahil, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak. Our guest is Tahil Sharma, interfaith activist and faith program manager for Brave New Films. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is the producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.